0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin vinyl records. Had Alex Leishman back on the show today for another look at some of the things going on behind the scenes at River and a little bit about lightning under the hood and how they're solving that problem institutionally. Now here's the thing guys, I messed up. I forgot to record like the first 10-15 minutes of our conversation with Alex, but no worries it wasn't, you, you didn't miss anything. It was mostly just our awkward pleasantries and uh, me going on way too long about accounting software. Quick recap of the stuff that you missed, Uh, River is now in 31 states in the US with Hawaii being the most recent addition, which is a big win for Hawaiians because up until now they didn't really have a good uh, brokerage that gave them access to buying Bitcoin, so big win for River, big win for Hawaii. River's watch-only hardware wallet integration is now in beta, so if you're on the beta for that essentially sync up your hardware wallet. I think currently they only support Trezor and Ledger, but the long-term grand scheme of things is to be able to offer watch-only wallets to anybody who uh, provides an XPUB, basically. So you'll be able to do it with pretty much any wallet of your choice, whether that be Bitcoin Core or some hardware wallet, and use that to track things like incoming and outgoing transactions and realize gain just to make doing your taxes a little bit easier. Totally an optional thing, something that some people might want to consider if they're willing to make the privacy trade-off, but obviously that's up to the individual. And I had asked Alex whether or not they plan to ever make their watch-only wallet available as like a white label or a subscription service if you could download it and run it on your own end to retain some of your financial privacy. He said that that's definitely in their mind and they may consider it down the road if they think there's enough demand for that. But enough of me recapping because of my silly mistakes, let's get right into the middle of the interview where Alex was starting to talk about lightning at River. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com, the economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF Dash I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support.
1: So, with Lightning, one of the things we're trying to iterate on here is removing the interactivity of Lightning payments. So, we want to, currently, the, the flow with River is you have to generate an invoice, send that invoice to somebody paying you, and then the person paying you over Lightning has to pay that invoice. We want to completely remove that interactivity. And with keysend, we can do that. Or it, it goes by people use multiple terms, keysend, um spontaneous payments. Uh it's kind of gone through different iterations over the last year or so as it's been developed by the people at Lightning Labs and, and, and Blockstream. So we we want to be able to support this functionality over Lightning so that people don't have to enter amounts to be paid. And um so 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 every user, once this is live, would have a QR code or a you know, a code that they can send people and that doesn't change. And embedded in that code is their account ID. Uh, And so now anybody who has that can just spontaneously pay this person over lightning. And when we receive that payment to our lightning node, we know which account to credit. And this really unlocks, I think, will unlock a lot more uh, activity over lightning because it removes a lot of frictions. And then also, I mean, something we're trying to figure out is just, you know, scaling up Lightning, right? And what does running Lightning at scale look like? There are a lot of security concerns, operational concerns, accounting concerns, just problems to work through that, you know, no one has really solved before. So, um, you know, one of the big ones is accounting, right? We're a regulated financial institution. We have to get annual audits, try explaining to an auditor how Lightning works and where the Bitcoin is, right? So, you know, like it was so where's the Bitcoin in lightning you know, we'll get this question from the auditors cause we have to track every cent that we have. And we're like, well, the Bitcoin is locked in this channel. It's, you know, uh, you know, it's got a two of two and, you know, you know, we'll get it on chain at some point later. Uh, and, you know, so like, and then building out the tooling to, you know, account for lightning payments and channels, um, you know, in a professional way, it helps remove a lot of the operational burden. So all of these things that like an individual running a lightning node wouldn't really care about um, as a company, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a million times harder and the problems really balloon. So, and then lastly, the security is obviously the big one, right? This, anything in lightning is kind of hot, like a hot wallet. And we need to be very cognizant about that. And uh, reasoning about the attack surface of lightning is a lot more difficult than Bitcoin because there's just a lot more state. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot more complexity. And so it's just an iterative process to really wrap our heads around that. And there's a long ways to go. One of the things we want to do is pull so so right now our lightning infrastructure is pretty segregated from our wallet infrastructure for on chain payments. One things one of the things we want to do over time is kind of mer- marry those two a little bit more so that our key management. Tools that we use for on-chain can be used for signing, you know, transactions to open channels on on, on Lightning and um, and to handle the cryptographic material in the same way that we would handle it for on-chain payments, and unifying that infrastructure. And and there's a lot of work to be like that's being done to help that. Like the standards around partially signed Bitcoin transactions and things like that really help push this forward. So, um, you know, we're thinking about all of that. There's also like you know attacks to protect from and thinking about how to charge fees so that, you know, a malicious user couldn't try to just like drain our lightning wallet and charge us a bunch of fees that, you know, we, um, would cost us money. And so there's like incentives to figure out. Uh, and right now what we do is we just like limit per user, the amount of lightning payments you can make per day. That's just kind of our stopgap, and we don't charge fees yet on it. So, um, so, so yeah, you know, there's a lot of things left to think through and do there. And then lastly, with this mobile app that we're rolling out, I'm really excited about what we can do with Lightning and mobile because that's really where Lightning shines um, is 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 the mobile experience more than the desktop experience, and so um, uh, you know o- over time I hope to really have a really smooth payment experience um, in, in the app, but it'll take some time to get it right.
2: That's awesome. There's there was a lot in there that you mentioned there, Alex. Um, I I'm curious to know a little bit more about like your Lightning. Do you guys just have one Lightning node? Is that
1: Um, So we run a, right now we actually run a multiple nodes. We have a setup currently where we have a gateway node um, and then we have a node like that sits behind that. So Mm -hmm. that's the current architecture. We might be playing with that and changing things a little bit, but kind of the way to think about that is um, we have one node, the gateway node, and that's responsible for managing our channels and our external liquidity and connections. And then the node behind that only talks to the gateway node And the node behind that is responsible for managing invoices and all the accounting kind of stuff uh, for users and things. So that's not necessarily like the end state that's optimal. It's just the way that initially was optimal with the way that Lightning nodes were constructed where kind of all this functionality was kind of merged into one piece of software. and then over time, you know, I imagine like invoices stuff and accounting is in kind of one system key management is in one system, you know, channel management is in another, um, there's some firewalls when it comes to, you know, who can connect with our lightning node and things like that. But um, yeah, that's the, that's the current setup.
2: So do you, does your node inadvertently become a, a routing node as well? You know, as, as a, as an individual user of the network, i have started to kind of get some channels going and I've started to route some payments. I'm wondering, has that become I mean, I know that stacking sats through the routing fees is, is pretty minimal, but I'm wondering, you know, what's your perspective on that from a business that really that's not their main goal. Their main goal is to provide liquidity for their users.
1: Yeah, so um, I need a, I haven't looked at the most recent numbers on kind of the routing fees that we've made. But yes, inadvertently, our node is a well-connected routing node at this, at this point um, because of the nature of our business. And it's definitely not a material source of revenue right now, but that may change at some point. And there are some interesting ideas around this, um, you know, running a lightning node in the funds and lightning channels will always be higher risk than cold storage, right? And so one of the ideas is potentially if routing fees become material and there is a market that develops here, um, allowing clients to actually like explicitly opt in to having their funds on the lightning node and, uh, and giving them a return for like the risk that they're taking um, is something interesting. Uh, that that is, I think, worth exploring down the road. And um, right now, we just kind of only put enough on there where, like, if something happens, like, we'd be able to just cover it. Um, so, uh, but so there's a lot left to figure out there.
2: You're talking about almost like sourcing liquidity to to be like placed into channels that you could use. Is that is that what you're trying to say?
1: Yeah, and, and right. So-
2: compensating people for that, like, liquidity, almost. In, yeah, in Bitcoin exactly. terms, not in, in in channel terms, but like you're you're actually sourcing Bitcoins to be used on your nodes. Oh, that's really cool.
1: Yeah, in theory, like in theory, we could do it from our own clients, right? Yeah. We could say, "Hey, oh, yeah. um, if you put your Bitcoin into this account, um, open a Lightning account, right, uh, or an interest-bearing account, you're you're opting into because there's no return without risk, right? right? And so you know, I don't I don't really ever want to run a company where we're promising returns and we pretend there's no risks. Like, I don't like that. Um, uh, so, you know, a- anyone op- getting returns in River would be like opting into like, okay, I understand the risks. Like the risks is like this lightning node gets hacked or something. And, um, you know, there's there's loss of funds, but the, the return potential is you, you know, you get routing fees um, proportional to the amount you contributed to to, to fund the the channels that we're using. Um, we don't have anything here planned in the near future. It's just a f- kind of interesting thought experiment, an interesting idea. There's a lot of, obviously building something like that is operationally complex, but um, that's kind of how, how I'm thinking about things at some point.
0: I have a two-part question in regards to this. Firstly, and you don't have to be specific if you don't want to, but firstly, where does... You know, an institution like River go to get liquidity on Lightning? And then secondly, do you have any plans to provide liquidity as a service to your customers? Because I know that's something a lot of people complain about on Lightning. It just isn't really there yet um, as terms of liquidity as a service.
1: So right now we get liquidity. So external liquidity isn't hard for us. I mean, we have Bitcoin ourselves as a company. Um, you know, we have sufficient external li- liquidity. Uh, Inbound though um, we've been uh, you know Lightning Labs has some good products here with Loop Um, you know Loop has been useful in getting inbound liquidity and down the road um, I I imagine those products become more and more mature that's definitely not our specialty is like providing liquidity to people but at some point you know it might be an interesting client perk or service for our own clients you know I like the future I envision is a world where well, what we always say is we want to be an institution people can trust, but don't have to trust. Right. And so the, the future I envision and that we're trying to build out for our clients is they can choose to trust us completely, or there's a spectrum all the way to not trusting us at all uh, you know, but still kind of benefiting from our services. So like with the Harbor wallet account, that's where, that's how we kind of are starting to bridge that gap with on chain stuff is like, well, if you don't trust us to store your Bitcoin, you can buy them from us and then store it on chain, but still have the convenience of using the River app and see all your Bitcoin there, but we can't move them. So then with Lightning, right? If you want to trust us, you can use our Lightning node and send and receive Lightning from your River account. But if you don't really trust us, you know, you could run your own Lightning node, but you know, just ask us to open a channel with you so that you can benefit from the connecting connectingness, connectedness of our node. Um, uh, while still having full control over your funds, uh, it's also like an interesting privacy thing too, right? Is if you're running your own node, you could get paid to your River account on Lightning, and then just send it to your own node right afterwards, so that you know the person paying you looks like they're paying to River, um, and uh, and you're not revealing you know your node's pub key to them, right? That's kind of interesting.
0: It gives you a lot of options as, a, as an end user or as like a merchant um, because you could you could accept it directly or you could use a middleman uh, and there's trade-offs there, but you have the option, which is what I really like.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's what we want to give people. You know, Bitcoin has a very large spectrum of types of people who are into it. Uh, everyone from the hardcore de- like developer who knows the internals of the Linux kernel, uh, to the boomer who just wants exposure because he, he sees like a lot of political uncertainty and doesn't really want to secure his own keys, but he knows Bitcoin is going to be important um, and everyone in between, right? And, and, and the other important thing to remember is people aren't statically in any of those buckets, right? People go from complete novice and not knowing anything to a power user over a few years, right? And so one of the things we want to do is not just provide a service for the person who doesn't ever want to touch their own Bitcoin, but have a clear path for them to learn and develop and grow and, and understand what it would make it as easy as possible for them to, to control their own funds at some point. So um, so yeah, that's how we think about that.
0: And earlier you had mentioned uh, explaining lightning to regulators and you mentioned a, a two of two. So I'm assuming... And again, you don't have to get into specifics if you don't want to. I'm assuming that that's how you guys are doing lightning is on multi-sig. Is there a lot of complex scripting there?
1: Well, so a lightning channel, right, is a, is a two of two, right? Okay. It's a, okay. That's what I mean. Okay. That's what I mean. Because mostly for auditors, right? So, you know, we have, to, we have to prove to auditors that we have Bitcoin, right? And if we claim we have, you know, X amount of Bitcoin in the lightning node, they're like, well, how can you prove that to me? And so then we have to explain, well, you know, we sent it to this channel open transaction and, you know, uh, we, it's just there's this now stateful channel that's kind of moving balances back and forth between us and our, and our peer. Uh, and you get what I'm saying is just like trying to explain that dynamic. So when they ask, so where's that Bitcoin? Uh, trying to explain that is like, well, it's kind of complicated. It, it's, it's kind of here in this
2: channel. Can you just send them a bunch of hash, hash time-locked contracts and be like, here, have fun, figure it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the problem is, you know, auditors are, uh, you know, if there's hourly billing, you, you, don't, you don't want to do that. You want to make it as easy as possible for your auditors. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs>
2: okay.
0: that, so I thought what you were saying was that you guys had figured out a way to script like a, like a multi-sig lightning channel. Um, like, uh, I, how, do, how do I describe this? Um, to mitigate the risk of the funds being hot, having them distributed across multiple signer keys, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, one possibility. So there's the channel key. um, And there's like, I guess the channel keys that are derived from a secret that manage the state updates of the channels. Um, And then there's the channel, then there's the Bitcoin keys that you use to pay to open the channel right? Um, And, you know, for when we're sending funds to open a channel, like those theoretically could be sent from multisig, right? Um, From a multisig wallet. Um, Really, the challenge is, you know, for the 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 key material for managing state updates to a channel. uh, How do you secure that? And I'm sure there is probably some MPC sort of stuff that could be done where you require multiple, you know, people that multiple you know, signers to do some MPC computation and sign off for channel updates. But the problem is that landing needs to be fast. That's really complex. So there isn't really a great solution there um, that I know of, um, you know, other than maybe HSMs with some sort of policy framework built into the firmware that is detecting anomalous behavior, but there's no perfect solution. Um, and really, honestly, the, the for an institution, like the best thing you can do at this point um, is is just have big channels with people you trust, um, like companies you trust, and then limit your exposure with untrusted parties. Um, so let's say you know us and you know some other you know exchange like I do Kraken or something had a big channel with each other, and something went wrong, right? I mean, you know, we'd just be like, hey, we'd call them up, be like, hey, guys, like you know. We accidentally sent you, like, something went wrong with, you know, software, you know, send us back the money, and are like, yeah, sure. Um, that's, like, the simplest thing right now you can do to be safe. But there, it's definitely going to have to increase in complexity or in sophistication for this to scale, um, you know, to, to untrusted parties.
0: Recently, there's been a lot of talk. Uh, I'm sure everyone's heard it, like, a thousand times. And I'm not even going to bother trying to get him on the podcast because he's been on so many at this point. But everyone was talking about Michael Saylor. And his big cash balance allocations, you know, holding Bitcoin as a cash reserve asset. I don't think we, we need to get into the specifics in that. I, I would imagine all of us are probably uh, on the same page regarding how awesome that news is. And it's kind of been talked about ad infinitum. But for me, it raised a lot of really interesting questions, you know, because in some of his interviews, uh, people were asking him, you know, how did you buy 500 million of Bitcoin and not move the price? Um, and and it it sparked a lot of interesting conversations about OTC markets, um, and and it also makes me wonder, you know, like how, where do exchanges get their Bitcoin, and how do they do it without moving the price, right? Because they have to source um, lots of Bitcoin, sometimes in short order, and you know, then you look at Coinbase, and Coinbase is sitting on a mountain of Bitcoin, and it, it's all probably a little different for each individual um, organization. But um, what, what's it like for you guys? I mean, like, where do you get your Bitcoin, and how
1: there are a lot more actors in the bitcoin market than they may than might be initially obvious so and i think it's also important to dis- to distinguish between a brokerage like ourselves and a peer-to-peer exchange like a Kraken or Coinbase or these guys where where they're actually just matching parties who each either want bitcoin or have bitcoin and they're matching those orders and they're also going out to find people to correct any sort of as- um, you know asymmetries right if, if they get a lot of buy flow in their exchange, they probably want to help attract sellers, right? And so they're probably working to, how do we find sellers to use us and incentivize them um, to, to increase volumes? So for an exchange, you know, and, and, and the, an exchange might have their own stash that they're, you know, selling onto the exchange or, or accumulating uh, trading on their own exchange. It's possible. Um, now for us though, you know, we're a broker. So, so, you know, technically we're selling off of our own book and um, our, order flow is also extremely skewed. I mean, it's like almost all buy. Um, so, so for us, it's our business is going out and sourcing Bitcoin for people. Um, at least in, the, since we've been operating, you know, the markets have been heavy accumulation for our clients at some point that price spikes, you know, we might see a lot of people wanting to sell. Um, and so, you know, we, so part of our business is going and finding as many sources of Bitcoin as possible um, to be able to satisfy the demand. And one of the challenges in this industry is it's pretty easy to find Bitcoin until everyone wants it, right? So, you know, um, everything's easy until there's a crazy market. But the problem is when there's a crazy market, that's when all your customers want Bitcoin. And so you have to put in the groundwork ahead of time to really you know, build up these relationships and liquidity sources and so what we and and also I think what isn't obvious to a lot of people is that the vast majority of Bitcoin volume isn't on exchanges. Um, it's it, that's just one way of people transferring Bitcoin from one per, from one party to another, right? That's not the only way that happens. Uh, and so OTC uh, in private markets and dark pools is where a lot of the big act, big money activity happens. Um, you know, just the layperson doesn't have access to that because they don't have the capital to necessitate meaning access to those, um, to those things. But, you know, somebody coming in and wanting to buy, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoin, they're going to look at all the, all the possible sources. Um, and that could be miners that could be another wealthy person sitting on a big stash that they're looking to unload some off some of, because they have, they want some liquidity, um, uh, you know, it could just be OTC desk themselves looking to unload, uh, their own off of their own book. Um, And so really at the end of the day, a market is just, you know, people who want to buy talking to people who want to sell and people do that via desks, via exchanges in person. Um, so yeah. Um, I think, you know, he was able to accumulate a lot of Bitcoin without moving the market and a lot of people, you know, the markets are pretty liquid. I mean, they're not like liquid, like the stock market, but there's a lot of Bitcoin. There's a lot of Bitcoin out there for sale at the right price and it's not like you just went the market bought 250 million on Kraken right
0: that actually raises another interesting question for me because if you think about it as a brokerage right as opposed to one of these peer to peer exchanges you kind of have to manage you kind of have to manage your risk a little bit because you're you're sort of between a rock and a hard place on the depth of your liquidity in terms of your order book that you can offer to your customers and then like the risk that you're exposing yourself to um, as, as an institution. But on the other hand, that kind of already makes you um, the Bitcoin as a, as a cash reserve asset, guys. You know what I mean? Like before Michael Saylor did it, before it was cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, we, we have our own Bitcoin stash. We maintain a Bitcoin position. We're net long Bitcoin all the time. I mean, this company,
2: we wouldn't be built, running this company if we weren't net long Bitcoin. How does how does that work, Alex? Because like for me, it, just looking at as an out from an outside perspective, it, you, you need the Bitcoin. Like obviously, you need to have this quote stash, like you said, in order to be able to sell. But like, is is that counted as part of your your cash reserves, or maybe maybe this is too much of a you know personal question? But I, it's is there a blurred line there between this is like your working capital, like a product that you sell versus like an asset versus like a cash reserve? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. This comes down into like, you know, how does, how does the accounting of our business
1: work? Um, and so uh, we, you know, the way we, think about, um, the way we think about it is, you know, we have a certain amount of Bitcoin that we want to own as a company, right? And uh, if that dips below a certain amount um, and we've sold some of it to people, right? We, we kind of accumulate that back um, and then vice versa, right? If someone sells us Bitcoin, you know, we'll, we'll, unload some of that. Um, and that's kind of a high level, just, gist, uh, gist of the business. Now um, when really big orders come along, like that's when, you know, things need to be a little, like it's, it's a little bit different, but, um, and, and so for something like really big orders, those are, those are happening like over a time period too often, right? No one's going to like just buy all that, like all at once. It's, it's often over a week or two. Um, it really just depends on how little you want to, how, how low-key you want it to be um so so yeah that's the that's the gist right like
0: what's yeah. what slippage you're willing to tolerate this this makes me think you know like all those of us like individuals that are long bitcoin um should be looking at the brokerages honestly like because the more demand there is for brokerage like services like you guys you guys are are long bitcoin like you said so you know, if, if river does really, really well and competitors start popping up, um, that's, that's good for liquidity as a, on a whole basis uh, across the market, because those guys have to come in and buy up Bitcoin, right. So that they can offer liquidity to their clients.
1: I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if your business is selling Bitcoin, you're going to probably be maintaining a, a decent Bitcoin position. Um, that said, you know, I think the bigger impact that an easy to use brokerage has, like ourselves, isn't really the fact that we buy Bitcoin, it's the fact that we make it very, very easy for other people to buy Bitcoin, right? And it's like, the way I think about it is, you know, the, 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 there's, there's a barrier to buying Bitcoin that people have had that Coinbase helps lower, but it's you know, still pretty high for a lot of these people. Um, a lot of these people still have a hard time using Coinbase. And so, you know, where we came along was how can we make it even easier for people to buy Bitcoin? And Lowering the barrier to people coming into Bitcoin is the biggest impact I think we have on, on the ecosystem. and um, Also, from a longevity and permanence perspective, the more people who have Bitcoin, the more politically untenable it becomes to try to block and ban, right? And so at this point, I mean, we're starting to get to the point where, honestly, like a lot of people in a lot of different facets of society have Bitcoin and banning it starts to become pretty like untenable for like most segments of society. Um, and so the faster we can get there, the better.
0: I was talking about this with someone on Twitter just the other day, cause he was asking me the question. He's like, how do I, he was posing devil's advocate and like, this is my father speaking. Um, you know, how do I know the government's not going to ban this tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, that was a good question like four years ago, but yeah. we, we're watching entrenchment happen every day, like every little thing that gets built out, every Satoshi that gets distributed to hands, you know, outside of the current Bitcoin ecosystem, as it continues to balloon outwards, you're watching entrenchment happen like that. You can't just shut that down.
1: Absolutely. Um, and you know, the wealthy, wealthy people, wealthy entrepreneurs, um, and, uh, people who run, you know, financial institutions, companies, um, you know, families that, that have wealth, I mean, these people are increasingly, you know, we see it every day, increasingly coming into Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, it, whether you like it or not, I mean, wealthy people are the ones who at the end of the day really drive like the direction of um, decisions in you know, society and government. And, and, you know, the more, basically, the more rich people have Bitcoin, like the less likely it's gonna be to be banned, right? um so
2: you know this you have a really interesting interesting perspective on i think the relationship you have with some of those clients and i would never want you to kind of reveal uh information about specific clients but i wonder if you could comment maybe as a whole um in seeing those you know higher higher net worth individuals at least like do you see them approach this um asset more like Oh, I'm just diversifying. You know, one or two percent. Or do you see them kind of going down the rabbit hole and starting to understand this more, like Michael Saylor did?
1: Um, it's 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 a spectrum. Um, it's it, it you get the full picture, um, or not the full picture. You get the you get the full spectrum. But you'd be surprised at how much thought that people put into this. I mean, maybe you wouldn't. You know, people who are people who have businesses and companies. I mean, these are smart people. Like they didn't get to where they are because they're an idiot right? So they, they put a lot of thought into their decisions. And, you know, there's a few key trends, though. Um, one is like, this is an alternative. There's 21 million. I want some of them. I don't like what the government is doing with all printing all this money. Like, I'm going to try this, right. And for them, a six figure allocation, you know, if it all goes, if it all goes south, like whatever, like, it's not going to be a big deal for them. Um, but then there's the people who, who, who they, they start to like, they're, they're going a little further. They're like, okay, um, I've built a success, successful business. Uh, I've built successfully wealth for me and my family. Um, but when I look at this wealth, uh, it's, it's in a company. It's a legal entity in the United States. It's in real estate. You know, that's again, protected by like legal property rights in the United States. Uh, if I look at the diversification I really have, I'm not diversified in any way, shape, or form against something going south in the United States. Interesting. What can I do to get some wealth that could hedge me against some catastrophic event happening in society in the US? And the logical conclusion they come to is like, well, Bitcoin is pretty good for that. Um, And it makes sense from a diversification perspective if almost all your wealth is in US companies and land and real estate and things that need property rights that are enforced by the US government diversifying away from that and at least some some a couple percent right um, so a lot of people are starting to think that way.
0: You know, a lot of these exchanges, um, like the first one that comes to my mind is Bull Bitcoin. Uh, They keep posting like week after week and month after month, like record volume, record volume, record volume, like we're seeing more, we're selling more Bitcoin than we ever have before. Um, And then you look at some of the metrics, like the number of uh, quote unquote dormant UTXOs just continues to grow. Like basically we're seeing people are accumulating this stuff and holding onto it and not letting it go. And I keep finding myself wondering, like, how much more Bitcoin is there to buy? Because, you know, there's only, what, like 3 million coins left to be minted. Um, The vast majority is already out there, like 80, 88% or something like that. Um, And yet, you know, you guys are still able to source liquidity. And that's what I think is so interesting is, like, maybe uh, people who work behind the scenes with some of these bigger deep pockets in terms of Satoshi's, you know, have a, have a better feel for it, but like, when are, when is this going, how long is it, can, can this go, you know, like how long can people just keep accumulating and accumulating and accumulating until there's just like this snap of the rope and, and we have to have some tension?
1: Well, uh, it's hard to say, you know, it's like how much latent supply is out there willing to sell at current prices. I mean, for every seller there, for every buyer, there's a seller, right? Um, and so, uh, the question is, you know, at what price are people willing to sell and right now it seems like there's still a lot of people willing to sell around this price. Um, and know, I think your question is like, well, when, when does that start to run out? And I don't know, like, you know, you know, I think, you know, even sailor said in the podcast, like who's selling to me. Right. Um, why are they selling? Right. Um, that's kind of crazy. So I don't know exactly who they are. I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, there's miners, like, miners are obviously selling to cover their operating expenses, but, Um, that's not really that much, uh, at the end of the day. So who else is selling? I mean, there's a lot of early whales that are potentially taking some off the table. There's institutions. Um, it's really, you know, who knows there were like ICO treasuries that I, I don't know how big those are, but like, they're probably selling again to cover expenses. Um, you know, there are merchants who take Bitcoin and need to sell it to cover expenses. But yeah, I don't know when this will dry up at this price. Um, I, yeah, who knows? I don't really pretend to like be able to predict market dynamics because at the end of the day, like no one knows, like you can have all the technical analysis you want. No one knows if some whale is sitting around waiting to sell at $12,000, right? Um, Like we don't know, but I'm surprised, like I, i given what i see happening day to day with with, with clients i like there's just so much accumulation happening right now and um i i'd be surprised if we weren't seeing higher prices like down the road here but again you never know
0: it's it's just insane to me i mean i mean i i get it right you know you're sitting on a hundred thousand bitcoin or whatever and you want to you want to buy stuff you want to do stuff you need to you need money for whatever Maybe, maybe you're starting a business. You know, I don't know what it is. It could be a, a whole number of things, but there are like just a growing number of people that are like, this is cheap. Like you'll sell this to me now. Fine. I'll take it. I'm holding this to like, to like I have grandkids, like this is not going yeah. to, I mean, I don't know. You just, you look at this and, and it just makes me wonder, like those people, maybe they don't see the big picture. You know, I don't know. And and I, you know, they, they're individuals, they make their own decisions. That's, that's perfect. That's fine. That's the way markets should work. Um, it's just, it's just crazy. To me.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, um, the the I think the question long term is, you know, how many people are, how many people need to sell Bitcoin to cover expenses, right? Um, that's like one interesting question. It's like I don't know. I mean, it's definitely miners. It's definitely others, and those people like, need to sell it. Uh, um, for everyone else, uh, you know, even going forward, there will it, that, imagine large institutions start to accumulate Bitcoin or funds, right? People. Funds need to rebalance. People rebalance portfolios. If Bitcoin goes up, people will sell something to rebalance. So, I mean, there's always going to be supply, you know, floating around. Um, there's always a price people are going to be willing to sell at. Um, so, yeah, it's a complex system.
2: But we'll, we'll see. Commenting after listening to this whole conversation and, and remembering something that Michael Saylor said, that he he said that he was dampening the volatility by buying and, and doing it intelligently. And I think that's really interesting that, you know, companies like River are are doing the same thing by increasing the liquidity of this beast, right? By providing these these channels to uh, distribute it. Um I, I just find that really interesting. So I, I appreciate all your all your comments and insight on it.
1: Thanks. Yeah no it's
2: definitely a fun business to be
1: in. Never a dull day.
2: Alex, we need to talk juicy
0: details, man. What can you tell us about River? What, what what secrets can you give us right now? Like, what's what's coming? What can people look forward to?
1: So the, the biggest not secret secret is the app. That's the thing I'm really excited about coming down the road here. Um, uh, we have a lot of cool improvements coming to the Harbor Wallet, uh, the Harbor Wallet account, um, being able to have much more fully featured functionality around that. Um, another thing we have coming down the road is just some... It, it might sound a little boring, but kind of just th- really kind of improvements to our core product that just continually make it better and better and better and just make it like really, we just want to be the absolute best place to buy Bitcoin. So, you know, our product is really what you see when you log into River is just the tip of an iceberg of a lot of operational and administrative software that written behind the scenes. So it's kind of boring, but a lot of the work we do is really just the tooling behind the scenes to scale this, make it as Easy to buy Bitcoin as possible, being able to settle people's orders as fast as possible, and give them access to their Bitcoin. Um, and so that's a big part of our focus. And, and, and you know, accepting new payment methods and um, being able to uh, show like U.S. dollar balances um, in your account when you log in, and things like that. Next year, we have some cool stuff coming down the road. Um, not going to give every little detail, but if you look at our product, we have multiple. When you log in, you can you have multiple accounts and the hardware wallet product we rolled out is a different account type than the brokerage account. That's your default uh, account that you get. And so kind of rolling out other types of accounts um, down the road is, is something we're working on. And uh, those other types of accounts will enable other financial services that um, yeah, I think people will find pretty interesting. Uh, things that people have talked about for a while that um, no one's ever really done. And we're pretty excited to, to, to roll that out. And some of them will be based on our Bitcoin engineering and, and a lot of the cool stuff we do there. And then some of them will be at a higher level, like financial services that um, no one's really made seamless yet in Bitcoin. So uh, yeah, we have a lot of cool stuff we're working on behind the scenes. All
0: right, guys, go back, listen to that several times, pick it apart. You might find a lot a lot of information in there. Alex, thanks so much, man. This was great. Uh, where can people find you? And obviously, you know, listeners know they can go to river.com slash BEC get their first week of trades, zero fee uh, and start, start working with you guys, you know, as, as their brokerage service, but where can people find you if they want to keep up with you?
1: That's right. Well, I'm on Twitter at Leishman L E I S H M A N. Um, You can also email me at Alex at river.com. Say you came in uh, from BEC and I'll give you the same, um, make sure that you get set up with the same, uh, the same discount. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy, pretty easy to reach. You can DM me on Twitter, email me Alex at river.com. Um, yeah.
0: Cool, man. Thanks so much for coming on again.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure.
2: That was,
0: all right. So we can either wrap back around and, and I can let you try to summarize this. I, I feel like if we just try to do the intro again, it's going to come off really weird. I I, I mean, don't know. up
1: to you. Like, I think the accounting stuff, we, it went on kind of long, too. So it's not like the worst thing in the world.
0: All right. Welcome back, guys. I hope that you liked listening to our conversation with Alex. Alex is one of the best and brightest in Bitcoin, in my opinion, and is doing some great things. He is a prodigy, so keep your eyes on River and pay attention to what they're doing, because I think they are fast on their way to being one of the market leaders in Bitcoin services. If you didn't catch it, Ben and I were recently on an interview with uh, Adam Taggart of Peak Prosperity, and we were actually featured in Zero Hedge for the second time uh, for the WTF 1971 website. So, Definitely encourage you to go check that out if you haven't seen it. You can find links to it in the more info section at the bottom of WTF Happened in 1971. And I think that this moment, this event, was like the kick in the pants that I needed to finally start working on. uh, The book that I want to write uh, under the WTF 1971 brand Our newsletters have kind of been a precursor, a way for me to build up content that I can eventually turn into a book, but I think this is it. I think now is the time that I should start uh, writing up that manuscript. No idea what the timeline is going to be on when I get that finished, but I'm excited to uh, hammer it out and share it with you guys. If you want to reach out to us, you can find me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, and you can find Ben on Twitter at mrcoolbp. Please reach out if you guys have questions or comments about the show, or you just want to chat. Our DMs are always open, or you can send us an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. Please don't send me requests about this awesome new altcoin project that you're interested in. Those just get deleted, and then I block your email because uh, it's the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, guys. Although, I think if we're being honest, we know anybody sending me those uh, hasn't ever actually listened to the podcast, but it's fine to be expected anyways guys don't forget that you can find all of the episodes of our show over at bitcoinechochamber.com as well as on just about any of your favorite podcast catchers but that's about all i got for this one i will see you in the next one